0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you
1: are listening live.
2: Good afternoon, fellow listeners. Thank you for joining me for my eighth show. The topic of the day is the Huguenots. It is 3 p.m. on Sunday, the 22nd of May, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is the Huguenots. good afternoon fellow educators and dear listeners so this is my eighth radio show at the hostess and i'm delighted to share this new exciting experience in your company but first i have to introduce myself i'm a french citizen of french and west west african ancestry i've lived in the uk since 2008 and i'm a professional educator i work in a secondary st- secondary state school in north london where i teach languages as well as humanities i teach french spanish and geography as well as history for ks3 and 4. i have also experience as a teacher in the charity sector you can follow me on twitter at prof prof mfl and all views on my own without further ado let's move on to our topic of the day I want to focus on a topic that is very relevant to me as an educator. And this is on the topic of the Huguenots. So I'll tell you more about who they are, but first I want to tell you, dear listeners, that this is mostly relevant to teachers of humanities, particularly history, teachers of languages, teachers of music, anyone who is interested in writing fiction writing as well as, as historical writing. Anyone who's curious about London, its architecture, its communities and its history. And to any listeners who is curious and want to learn more about London, French culture, but also the history of migration. Uh, someone says in the chat, what about math teachers? I have to say, this is definitely not my field. So maybe I should invite a math teacher next time to help me out with a subject that I don't master at all. So in all honesty, um, Huguenots, uh, because this is obviously a French word, who are they? So there is a connection to France, but first I wanna tell you why I stumbled on the story of the Huguenots and why I think it's interesting for educators to know more about them. So first I, I discovered the Huguenots by doing some research on London, London's architecture because I'm a fiction writer in my spare time, and I do love to know where the buildings are from. And I did notice when I was walking in Soho that there was a few Protestant churches with um, names written in French on the facade. So as I went online, I discovered that the Huguenots were a group of French Protestants. And because I teach humanities as well as languages, um, I was trying to include the two subjects and the two departments in lesson planning to make it a little bit more transferable. Uh, In a process of inclusive lesson planning, I thought, why don't I work on the Huguenots with my students? Because when you work on history and you include uh, languages, you get new transferable skills. You can add art craft, you talk about diversity, history, culture, literature, and you can obviously do what's necessary for for your students in the view of succeeding at the exam, which is working on grammar, linguistics, syntax, and a little bit of general knowledge never hurts, as I say. So when we talk about the Huguenots in London, we deal with French culture, we deal with food and the textile departments, uh, French heritage, English literature and English painting, and I'll tell you more about it later. And also we have a big chunk of knowledge on music and history. So for me, it ticked all my personal boxes as an educator. So in 2011, there was the last UK census. And it said there was 86,000 people in London who had French passports. There's a lot of French people in London. It's a small minority, but you'll notice them if you walk around Kentish Town or South Kensington, you'll hear lots of people speaking French. You will see some cheese shops and some wine bars. Now, French people have a strong cultural identity and presence, but it might be a bit more discreet. But if you pay attention, you will know that there is the French embassy and, um, next to, and the French consulate in London next to the Natural History Museum, for instance. So we're going to explore the migration of French people in London through its history with its biggest group so far, the Huguenots. So what does it mean exactly, the Huguenots? So the term um, is referring to French Protestants from the 16th and the 17th century. And these people, Didn't really want to be Christians in the Catholic sense and they preferred to embrace the teaching of a theologian called Jean Calvin. John Calvin. I'm sure you've heard of him before. So, Jean Calvin was born in 1509 and died in 1564. He was a theologian, a lawyer, a reformer, and his writings led to the Protestant Reformation, which had a massive impact in Europe, Germany. England, but also in America, where a lot of Protestants went to settle because they were fleeing from religious persecution. So Jean Calvin, Um, this has a lot of uh, violence, um, this movement, um, Protestantism, because there was a clash between the two main religions in Christianity, which is Catholicism and Protestantism. If you want to watch a movie that shows the roots of the trouble and the violence, I would advise you to watch La Reine Margot, The Queen Margot. It's a historical romance written by the mixed race novelist Alexandre Dumas, who is famous for the Three Musketeers. And it, the plot of the move, of the book, before it was uh, adapted as a movie, the plot deals with the massacre of Protestants in the streets of Paris during Saint Bartholomew's day massacre in 1572. So the problem with religion is that when there's clashes, um, there's blood in the streets. So in 1572, Catholics decided to kill Protestants. And it, it started in Paris and then it spread in the countryside. And this event, St. Bartholomew's massacre, was the culmination of the French wars of religion. So a movie made by Patrice Chiraud, adapting the novel by Alexandre Dumas, is well worth watching. Uh, just a word of caution, it is quite sexualized and quite violent. But if you've loved Game of Thrones, you'll enjoy that one. So, after this massacre, the king of the time, Henry IV, who was very tolerant, decided he wanted to calm down his population, and he passed the Edict of Nantes. Nantes is a town in Western France. So, in 1598, he made sure um, freedom of cult was allowed, so any Protestant subject could follow their religion in France. And that led to a relative period of peace. The problem is his grandchild, Louis XIV, you might have heard of him as the Sun King. He was very fond of partying, uh, drama, theater, ballet dancing, and also wearing high heels and very big wigs and taxing his population as well. Uh, But on another note, Louis XIV wanted to be an absolute king and he didn't enjoy the fact that his granddad gave religious freedom to the population. So he revoked his granddad's edict in 1658, so almost almost 100 years later. As you can tell, I'm not so good at mathematics, a little bit less than 100 years later. So he revoked the Edict of Nantes by signing a new edict called the Edict of Fontainebleau. Fontainebleau is in the, um, around Paris. And he hired his own soldiers called the dragons, les dragons, to hunt Protestants. This led to uh, Protestant men sent to the galleys where they had to row um, and be used as slaves, Protestant women to be attacked and shaved, and their children sometimes to be taken off them. Now, this had... um, some repercussions all over Europe because obviously if you're being persecuted in your country you become a refugee. So the protestants left France en masse, went to Germany where they tried to settle down, but they also left to different countries such as the UK, Canada, America and even some places in South Africa. So there was a massive influx of French-speaking protestant people from the Edict of Fontainebleau in 16, my apologies, 58. So they settled mostly in the capital, that's where you usually arrive. And they had a lot of influence on the culture. So for those who work in the arts or who are interested in paintings, I know it's a radio show, but I would advise you to Google or to do use a search engine of your choice to type John Everett Millet's painting entitled A Huguenot on St. Bartholomew's Day, and it's it's dating 1852. It's a beautiful sad painting representing um, in the background a wall of red bricks covered in ivy, and then there's a couple in the middle a young lady wearing a black dress with some lovely golden embroidery details on her sleeves and her lover or boyfriend who is wearing a blue jacket and black trousers and they are hugging, they are giving each other a cuddle because he's obviously going to fight. So these historical events that happened in France in 1578 inspired painters 200 or 300 years later. Why? Because it was such a dramatic event. You know, it was French people persecuting other French people. So there's definitely a very strong link between English and French culture. And uh, there was also the Elizabethan dramatist, Christopher Marlowe, who knew the story of um, the massacre in Paris very well. And he used a lot of that Uh, when he in his writing so he wrote for instance a very strong anti-catholic and anti-french play based on the events entitled the massacre at paris so we can see how interconnected uh, french and english cultures are so the huguenots had to move um it's it's interesting to notice how cycle how many cycles we have in history we do have refugees fleeing persecutions as we speak now and it happened for the French Huguenots. So the great refuge started in in the 1680s and um, I have to say, England was very welcoming for the French Huguenots. They crossed the channel or they had to leave from different ports, from Nantes, La Rochelle, Bordeaux, Granville, Dieppe and Calais, and they mostly settled first in London, in Soho and in Spitalfields. So I have to say, King James the really helped them by signing the Declaration of Indulgence in 1687, where he said that French Protestant could build new churches, and uh, the churches would have to receive the people. So the churches had to gather data, and you can still find it in the archives. If you're lucky, you can ask to see it. And there was royal charters authorizing them to structure Um, the arrival and um, establishment of these French Protestants. So nowadays, there are still Huguenot descendants, and you might be familiar with some of the most famous descendants of Huguenots. So in North America, England, Ireland, and South Africa. Now I'm going to give you a few names of very famous contemporary people you might have seen um, on TV. So there is uh, Jessica Chastain, Timothy Chalamet, they're both actors, American actors, but as their surname shows, they are of French ancestry, particularly Protestant ancestry. It is said that Princess William and Harry have Huguenot ancestors um, on the um, William of Orange and Charlotte de Bourbon Montpensier side. For those who are um, fans of Doctor Who, but the old school version, there was John Pertuis, um, who was an actor, one of the Doctor Who actors. Pertuis is a very common name in Provence. Eddie Izzard, for those who like comedy, he has Huguenot ancestry, and his name would have been pron- pronounced Izar," and he, it's originating from the Pyrenees. Charlize Theron has Huguenot ancestry, she's a South African actress. Um, and some people say that Nigel Farage is a descendant of the Huguenots. Who knows? So lots of famous people. Now, the beauty of choosing the Huguenots as a topic to teach students in secondary school or even in primary school is that you can organize visits to see Huguenot artifacts pretty easily. There is a museum of the Huguenots in Southampton, and you can also go on a Huguenot silk uh, Canterbury walk with a guide, because there's a lot of displays in the museums that are showing Huguenot art, craft or art. Uh, There's a strong story Um, in the weaving industry of the Huguenot traditions and I'll go further into that but can I just say that if you're interested in fashion you will love to know more about the Huguenots because they did have a big impact on in fashion and also if you decide to go and visit London you can attend um, one of the guided tours that our guest the speaker of the day is going to talk about and they are wonderful so stay in tune for listening to the gentle author he's got plenty of stories to share now as i had a class of year 10 i could go quite quite further in the topic so i asked them to do some research on the huguenots and they came out with a lot of things about fashion the silk industry because when the Huguenots started settling in London, they needed a trade and they brought their own skills and they were very good at weaving silk. Um, they settled in Soho and Spitterfields, which became, a um, hub of silk weaving production. Sadly, it was not an easy life. So for the laborers, there's a saying that when they were very young, They already looked aged by the difficulty of their job and their life expectancy was 40 to 50 maximum. So they didn't come here to have an easy life, most of them. Now, because the Huguenots were welcome in England, they all settled in the same area at first. They quickly built a church and you can still visit these churches, although often enough, the buildings are used for other purposes nowadays. I would advise you to start your uh, wandering sessions in uh, Spitalfields. You would start with Fournier Street, which has a French name. And in Fournier Street, you can see a Huguenot Protestant temple. It is now used as a mosque and it became a Jewish synagogue at one point. It just shows how in London, there's waves of immigration and the buildings seem to still carry the um, identity of the migrants who settled, so the Huguenots in the 17th century, and then the Jewish community in the 18th century and 19th century, and most recently, people from Bangladesh in Brick Lane and Spitalfield. So on the same building, you're going to see signs of French culture and religion, Jewish culture and religion, and Muslim culture and religion. This is very London, isn't it? If you walk in Spitalfields, you're gonna find some beautiful houses which are a bit different from normal UK houses in the sense that they have shutters outside. French people usually have shutters, wooden shutters or metal shutters outside their windows on the facades and you can see that in Spitalfields. The beauty of the work that these silk weavers were doing in Spitalfields is sadly not a good example of how hard their lives was. If you go to the Victoria and Albert Museum, you can see the wonderful dresses and the wonderful silverware that were produced by these day laborers. They were very skilled uh, workers. Sadly, when you were at the bottom of the food chain or at the industry chain, uh, there was a lot of poverty. So there used to be, uh, in Spittersfield, a history of striking violent strikes clashes with the authorities clashes between the owners of the factories and the journeymen because their wage was not big enough for them to be able to feed and clothe themselves so there's a history of struggle there was starvation wages and um, a lot of the people who were working in these industries were suffering a great deal If you visit uh, Spittersfields, the story of the Huguenots can't be be separated from the social unrest it led to. Because in the 1760s, um, there started to be um, another type of competition and it was coming from India with the production of cheap cotton fabric. And this led to more unrest here. So if you are familiar with the story of the cutters, the cutters in 1769, were engaged in sabotaging um, the silk weaving looms, because they wanted to protect their industry. There was a fear of the mob that led to oppression from the um, authorities. And um, we have, um, we have accounts that you can still check of people were, were fighting. There was the Chauvet workers whose homes were attacked and um, some workers and also some rioters started to cut the silk out of the, the looms. 50 looms were damaged. There was risk of looting, attacks at night, pistols being fired in the air, and people were terrified. So living in Spitalfields might have been a very difficult um, hardship. There were also public executions at the time and hangings. And if you are very, very aware, and if you walk on um, Salmon and Ball, 502 Bethnal Green Road, you might see a blue plaque, which um, commemorates the public execution by hanging of two silk cutters, because they were they were prosecuted for inciting rioting. There were John Doyle and John Valine, So you can tell that the Huguenot stories has a lot of tragedies involved, not only just leaving your country, France, escaping, um, becoming a refugee, but also trying to feed your family on, on very low wages. Some Huguenots became extremely rich, but a lot of them were not. And there was... We're all familiar with the poverty in in Victorian London with Oliver Twist's novel, for instance, but it is true that a lot of these silk weavers' families were suffering great deals. Um, Because there was a lot of immigration and people from different walks of life and different countries, in Spittersfield, the first soup kitchen was opened. So you might think, oh, this is very charitable. This is lovely. Um, the founder of the first soup kitchen was Patrick Colcon in 1795. So he wanted to avoid the Huguenots from being inspired too much by revolu- revolutionary France. So it was a preventative measure f- on his side to calm the, the mob. So he thought, if I give them bread, no circuses but bread only, they might just come down. So you can see that the soup kitchen starts with a good idea but it's actually a political tool for preventing um, social unrest and by definition keeping the status quo and keeping the poor in their condition. Let's just remember as an aside that Patrick Culkin was also a, a slave owner with a Jamaican sugar plantation. So I don't think his uh, charitable credentials are very high. So the French soup kitchen, because there was one offering food for French uh, descendants, was located at 115 in Brick Lane. And it um, originated um, in 1797 and it was called La Soupe. obviously. Huguenot architecture is um, Difficult to find, but you will definitely be aware of it once you've found it. So on Soho Square, there is a church with a beautiful red brick facade. So that's not very French, but it has the Gothic and Flamish style, and it has been built with the bricks from Luton and Dalton, Terracotta. And is um the designer was William Aumonnier. He was a Huguenot, which means that he was born in England, but he had Huguenot ancestry and French ancestry. So this building is great and you can visit it with um, your students if you want to organize that. I checked the website, it is available for visits. It's got um, lots of religious architectural fixtures, but what is really good is that inside, there is um, the possibility to see something that I discovered when I did some research. And this is, the Protestant coin. So what is a Protestant coin? It's basically a way to be recognized as being Protestant. When you travel and you're abroad, you had to to give evidence of who you were. So if you had one of those coins, they, they could have been used as money, but it was not the point. It was not really to have commercial value. It was more to show who you belong to. So these Protestant coins, you can find them in that church, they're called in French, les mérots, and they had a religious symbolism. I've, I discovered that and I thought that was wonderful that a coin would be used. So obviously, I can I can expect that some people used it as jewelry or just as a votive as well. Now, I did mention silk weaving. But some other French Huguenots had other skills. There was a lot of them who were um, professionals in silverware and luxury crafts. So if you go to the Royal Albert, um, uh, Victorian Albert Museum, you can see baskets made out of silver by Paul de la mairie, candelabrum, soup tureen, lots and lots of beautiful silverware that were produced by Paul de la Mairie. So he was born in um, the Netherlands and he died in London. He was Dutch born, uh, but he also had French ancestry. And he was very famous goldsmiths and he made a lasting impression on silverware and style. And also something that you could uh, potentially introduce to your students, if you are doing DT, or if you're an arts teacher, or just if you want to teach them about history using art crafts, is fan making. Because Huguenots were really good at making fans and they used that as a trade. So there is an example in a museum of a fan with um, a scene painted on it, watercolors. This was commonly sold. It could have been the cheapest ones made out of paper and the more luxurious one made out of silk, but it was definitely something that allowed them to make a living. And it's quite easy to make uh, in class with some lollipop sticks and paper. So the beauty of the Huguenots is that you can deal with, obviously, silverware and um, DT with the fan. You can talk about silk weaving and silk weaving will lead to coding because it was an extremely technical thing, the looms. Um, the looms are the, the machines that were ma- made to, to weave the silk. So all this can be used in the classroom to broaden the minds of our students. Now, if you are an English teacher, you might also be interested to know that there's a fiction. Uh, novel, The Silk Weaver by Lise Treno. and Liz Trenow. Um, it's her family history. Her, I mean, her ancestors owned a weaving business in Soho in the 1700s, and she realized it, and she decided to to write a fiction novel. I think it's a romance, so you might want to offer the option uh, to your students to read it and maybe make um, a commentary on uh, on the book during an English class. And if you're a DT or an arts teacher or textile teacher, you might want to present the story of Anna Maria Garthwaite. So she was in French, but it's fine. (laughs) She was very much influenced by the silk weaving industry. She was a single woman who decided in her late thirties, so quite an advanced age for the times, to become an independent Um, designer. So she moved to London, she settled in princelet Street, and you can still visit I mean, you can still visit the street and see her house. It has been kept beautifully. Um, There are pictures available on our gentle author website that you can see later on. Um, So Anna Maria was an amazing designer and she drew patterns for clothing she loved flowers and she was making good use of the botanical society um books so she would get inspired by their books and transfer the flower images onto silk or fabric she has produced over a thousand patterns and that's maybe where a maths teacher might be interested into that but it to create patterns you need to have a very solid mathematical knowledge that is akin to coding. And you'll be surprised to know that the current owner of the house that belonged to Anna Maria Garthwaite on Princelet street in Spitalfields is someone who made a fortune in the coding industry, the online one. I, I love that link between a lady starting a business uh, in the 1700s And then someone doing something similar, but online, many, many uh, years later, I find it fascinating. And if you love dresses, as I do, you can go to um, the Royal um, Victoria and Albert Museum and see her dresses. Because there's a mantra, which is a type of gown that is very wide to the sides. Um, and it's made out of silk and it was um, inspired by her. So at the V&A, you can ask to see the display of Anna Maria Galbraith's work. And she was definitely a Spittlesfield lady. So as I said, the Huguenots had traits, jewelry, silk weaving, silverware, but also furniture making. And they brought their Frenchness to um, architecture, to interior design, and they had a lasting influence. But there were some of them, the lucky ones, I'd say, they were also very good at banking. So we have, for instance, the Bank of England's first governor, Sir John Houblon, who was the grandson of a Huguenot refugee, Samuel Bozonquet. So they had influence on the banking industry as well. Interesting, isn't it? Now, also, a little bit further away from Spittlesfield, there's the Sutton House in Hackney. Very, I, I really recommend you visiting it. It's a beautiful house. If you're interested in ghost hunting, it's supposed to have a few ghosts in there. And um, the Sutton House, was um, the residence of two men, Timothy Ravenhill and George Garrett in 1752. They had split the house in several build, several flats, I would say. And these two neighbors really disliked one another. So they were described as I quote, an unhappy pair prone to bickering and arguments, each may have regarded the other as the neighbor from hell. So Apparently, you can still hear them arguing at night if you walk past Sutton House in Hackney. I'm not sure this is factually correct, but it's always worth checking. As I did some more research on um, French migrants coming to London, I also discovered a lovely lady called Flora Tristan. Flora Tristan. This is not so much about the Huguenots, but I'm just giving you resources in case you want to weave more uh, French culture into the London landscape for your lesson planning. So Flora Tristan was an early feminist. And um, I'm a passionate feminist. So I think it's always great to talk about these ladies who were the first ones to do so. So she wrote Promenade dans Londres, an account of her walking in London. So she was a coming here in a uh, Victorian London, but she was also describing the architecture and the people. So I think it would be a great thing for any A-level students who wants to do their own project and research. So Flora Tristan, Promenade dans Londres. And because I know the editor of this book, I'm just going to advise you, if you're interested in French culture, the story of Alexis Sauier. Alexis Soyer was the first French superstar chef. So forget about Gordon Ramsay, forget about um, J B Oliver. Just think about Alexis Soyer. He was a cook. He was a chef. He was an entrepreneur, but he was also a Crimean War hero and someone who tried to help the Irish people were dying during the uh, potato famine. So please, please, please check out this book, Relish. It's called Relish, and it's about this fantastic French chef who lived in London, and he's buried at Kensal Green Cemetery if you want to visit his grave. So we have a lot of history of French people coming here, making lives in London, bringing their arts, their skills, their knowledge, leaving their marks. You can still see Alexis Swayer's grave. You can still see the houses with shutters in Spittlesfield. You can embrace the culture and what they brought with them. So definitely something to investigate for history teacher, for English teachers, and for anyone who loves to know what happened before our times. So when I introduced the Huguenots to my students in year 10, I gave them resources and I also told them to watch documentaries. There's a great Arte documentary on YouTube. Remember Arte is um, a channel made by the French state and the German state to encourage cooperation between the two nations. So it's a great documentary about how persecuted the, the Protestants were and when they left to go to Germany, they were not always welcome either. So um, I gave this assignment to my students. I told them choose an aspect of the Huguenot story that interests you, do some research, create a PowerPoint, add illustrations and present it to us back in class. And I got some beautiful examples. So one of my students chose la mode, fashion, and she realized that there was um, a, a fashion designer, Lee Olt, Ault, A-U-L-T, who realized she had Huguenot ancestries, and then she designed a dress inspired by the silk weaving traditions. I got students who were really interested in the St. Bartholomew's massacre because you know it's gory, it's violent, and it's dramatic. And I had some who were more interested in the in the migration and the fact that some people had to hide in wine, um, um, I forgot the word, barrels, in wine barrels, emptied one, obviously. They had to hide their children to make sure they could be free to escape and go across the channel. So a lot, a lot of research potential. Now, I did mention that the music department could find something great to do about the Huguenots. And it's true because there's Jacob Liebman beer who was born in 1791, and died in 1864. So he, he could have potentially met Huguenots. And he he was called Giacomo. Um, because I guess when you when you make your your name sound more Italian, it's better if you're a music composer, and you write operas. So um, Jacob Liebman Bier was also Jewish. And I think um, that may be what made him so interested in the plight of the Huguenot refugees, because in the Jewish consciousness, being um, uprooted is something that they know deeply. So he might have found an affinity in the plight of the Huguenots. So he wrote an opera called Les Huguenots. And um, it was played in Paris in 2018. And it's a beautiful opera. And kid you not i played the first 15 minutes to my year 10s so imagine a class of 15 year old students Uh, most of them really like trap music or hip-hop and i confronted them with an opera in french and well they listened to it and we even did a listening exercise i gave them lyrics with missing words and it's a beautiful song it's called oh Pays de la touraine And they did it. So it just shows whatever the audience, if you present it in a way that's respectful and um, adapted to to the skills of your audience, you might inspire them. So there is a beautiful video on YouTube with Lisette Oroposa, who is a South American singer. She is absolutely stunning. Please listen to it if you have the time. Lisette Oroposa in the Huguenots opera because I try to use different style I use music I use paintings I use art crafts I also did show my students some paintings there is the emigration of the Huguenots by Jan Antonuhis who is um, Dutch painter I made the students describe it the same way they would describe a picture for their GCSE speaking exam. So they would have to talk about the people, the actions, the location, the clothing, the mood, and the weather. And it was a painting that represents a group of people about to embark on a boat to cross the channel. It's a sad scene because people are crying, some are staying behind, grandma and granddad are staying behind, and um, the parents and the young children are leaving. There's a lot of people to describe. There's a guard, there's sailors, there's in the background, there's some um, beautiful houses. So there was a lot to say. And even if it was in French, they were able to come out with some lovely sentences. So please don't think we we need to only use uh, exam board provided pictures. We can use paintings to do photo description for our um, speaking practice for GCSEs. As I mentioned, uh, you can organize guided tours to visit um, Soho and Spitalfields on the Huguenot's footstep. And our guest speaker of the day will talk more about it when um, I'll start the interview. But I just wanted to insist on the fact that if you are a biology teacher as well, a science teacher, you might want to bring some silkworms into the lesson. And I was lucky enough to have colleagues who had silkworms and the cocoons they surround themselves in which will eventually once boiled detangled and woven will become silk and the students were fascinated by the cocoons um it's a type of animal that eats the leaf of a a tree and then um it, it just most people don't realize that silk is actually made by an animal, a worm. I mean, it's not technically a worm, it's a caterpillar, but it's called verasois, which is silkworm. So if you happen to have some silk from the art and textile department, you can also show it to the students. And if you are into history or English, there's a series of engraving by William Hogarth, depicting a silk loom in 1747. So that series is famous, I think it's at the National Portrait Gallery, but I might be wrong. It's called the Industry and the Idleness series. So it shows the destiny of two boys. One is serious and hardworking, And one is a bit of a rake. And um, Hogarth is focusing on the trajectory of these two children. And that's great. It's almost like a cartoon. And I think you could use that as well, if you wanted the students to make their own cartoon eventually. So, as I said, you can use the music with the opera of the Huguenots. You can use silk biology um, with the silkworms. You can use uh, for DT the weaving, showing how to make a pattern for silk weaving. There's so many techniques and skills we can introduce in any lesson. I, I could even advise you to use the Huguenot as a school topic for a whole year, and you can try in all departments to work together and create a common curriculum around that. And at the end of the year, you could do a school trip visiting Southampton or London on the Huguenot footsteps. So I know that's quite a challenge, but it can be done. And I want to talk more about what I did with my students eventually, is um, I took them on on a guided tour. I didn't have a budget at that time, so I made the guided tour myself but because I wanted to be really honest about it, I just used a lot of resources from our gentle author, um, who is gonna be our guest speaker. So I will talk more about his work with him, but I just wanted to tell you that it is possible to take a group of 20, 15 year old students uh, from an inner city London school in North London and make them walk around Spitalfields, showing them all the architecture and how inspired by the people lived in it, it is. How there's French Protestant temples, how there was uh, Jewish synagogues, how there's now Bangladeshi mosques, and how it's still there. The past is, the shutters from the French houses are still there. There's signs that people from different countries lived there. So my circular route in Spittersfield started with an Anglican church. We went to Fournier Street, Brick Lane Mosque, Princelet Street, where Anna Mag- Maria Galbraith has her house. I mean, it's not hers anymore. Um, but there's a plague, a blue plaque at the front. Wilkes Street, Hanbury Street, Folgate Street, and we stopped at Denis Sever's house. And Denis Sever's house is a wonder. And I'll explain more about it later. Now, I'm gonna let you have a bit of a break because i bombarded you with information so i'm just gonna play the news and if you have any questions please 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 use the chat and i'll answer after the break thank you enjoy your break
4: in bursary. Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at stevewoods.co.uk.
0: If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer we are with a Slack group if you'd like to find out more we'd love to hear from you visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future
1: this is teachers talk radio and this is teachers talk radio news with joe fox
5: Money raised through changes to family allowance in Guernsey is now being invested in cultural activities for children in the island's primary schools, according to a report from ITV News. The changes approved in 2020 have provided £150,000 which can be used for cultural enrichment to give children experiences different from those they might get in the classroom. This has included an interactive science roadshow called the Science Dome, which toured the island's schools, so children can learn about places and environments around the world. Kim Hutchinson, Head of Primary Leadership and Development said, the initiatives help children deepen their understanding of the world around them. In Scotland, a consultation is being launched on statutory guidance on school uniform, intended to bring down cost and address equality issues. In an article in the TES magazine, It is reported that the Scottish Government say the guidance aims to remove the barrier to participation in learning that it says is caused by school uniform issues. Submissions need to be in by the 14th of October, and the consultation process seeks to gain the views of pupils and states that the guidance will not seek to abolish uniform, but instead wants to promote equality. The guidance also seeks to avoid the need for uniform to be purchased from expensive specialist retailers. Lancaster is one of the cheapest cities to enjoy student life, according to an article in the Lancaster Guardian. It has been named as the ninth cheapest city in the UK, costing an average of £156.20 a week. The cheapest city is Wolverhampton, with an average of £120.90 per week. The analysis conducted by the tutoring expert Superprof examined every university location across the UK to determine where students can live at the lowest cost. It was based on cost of living factors, such as the price of weekly student accommodation, as well as weekly costs of alcohol, fast food, coffee and taxi fares. The third most affordable city for students with an average weekly spend of £134.90 is Aberdeen. Speaking to the fifth global conference on the elimination of child labour, Dennis Signolo, Director of Education International's African Regional Office in Ghana, said education is the most powerful weapon you can use to eliminate child labour. Signolo noted that teachers are the ones who identify those out of school and who take action, so investment in teachers was a key priority. He acknowledged that the pandemic had been a huge setback in the fight to reduce child labour, but also acknowledged the impact of natural disasters and challenging economic circumstances. The conference will end with a published document detailing the call to action on Friday. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox.
2: Hello, fellow listeners, thank you for listening to the news. So I was just mentioning Denis Sever's house before we listened to the news. So this is to give a different perspective on the Huguenot story. And this has to be the LGBTQ perspective. Spitalfields uh, is an area rich in history, uh, in, in the history of migration, but also in LGBTQ um, important people, such as the artist Gilbert and George, but also the fascinating Dennis Sever. So Dennis came to London uh, from New York, from America, and he was a um, suddenly he came to London and he started loving the place. And he bought a very, very old, very cheap house, at the time it was cheap, in the 80s, a very, very old house in Spitalfields on Forage Street. And Dennis had this idea, that became literally an obsession. Dennis wanted to recreate a Huguenot house. He went as far as creating a family with made up French names and a story how they got there, what they did. And then he started to furnish his house as a Huguenot house. And he tried to go to all the flea markets and car boot sale and he filled it with memorabilia from that era, recreating a Huguenot house. And then he sadly died of AIDS in the early noughties, I think. Um, So he could never really see the success of his endeavor, but it is now a wonder. You can go and visit Denis Severs' house, but I would recommend visiting it at Christmas time because it's lit by candlelight and it is a wonder of a house. You feel like stepping in time. It's all recreated, but it does feel like it's inhabited by a ghostly figure. Um, if you're into paranormal, you might love the place. If you're into history, you might love the place. And if you're into quirky, quaint, over the top, um, almost baroque interior design, you'll love the place. So please make sure you visit Dennis Sever House and check Gilbert and George, who are two uh, artists, visual artists, and they still live in Spitalfields and their studios in Spitalfields. So as I said, Spitalfields has everything. It has the French culture, the Jewish culture, the, the Bangladeshi culture, the LGBTQ um, venues or places of interest. It's perfect for having a different perspective on London. So I'm gonna let my lovely speaker talk to us. He is one of the most cultured persons I've ever met. And uh, I think he's a specialist of Spittersfield in his own right. So I hope you'll enjoy our interview with Gentle Author. So I'm here introducing our dear guest speaker. Our speaker is today the Gentle Author. So thank you very much for accepting to share your own professional experience of presenting uh, tours in Spitalfields and writing uh, many, many, many posts and comments on your blog. So the gentle author, welcome.
6: Oh, thank you. It's a great honor and privilege to be here to speak
2: with you, Maud. Thank you. So my first questions are to allow our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. So uh, dear gentle author, tell us more about who you are and what you do.
6: Well, um, for the past 14 years, I've been publishing a story every day on the Internet on a blog called Spitalfields Life in which I write about the people who live in Spitalfields and in particular the East End of London. And so I've done, I suppose, around 800 oral histories as part of that work.
2: That sounds very impressive. I have to advise the listeners to have a look at your blog because your website because it's wonderful and there's so many stories that are very funny and instructive and also quite deep. Um, so definitely, uh, very useful resources for teachers of history, creative writing, and English. Um, so why do you have such a deep interest for the area?
6: Well. Um... My first job was here in 1981, and um, I come from the west of England, from a rural community, and I was brought up with the idea that you could always speak to people, and that when you got off a bus, you would thank the bus conductor. So when I first came to London, I found it a very strange and alienating place. But in Spitalfields and in the East End, I found that it is still possible to greet people, and there is still a really strong sense of community. and. That's what drew me to the place.
2: So I guess this is what fascinates you, um, the community. but when you read when I read your your blogs and all, all your writing, what I see the most is the the history. So did you have an, in, an interest for history before you arrived or was it the area that brought that into your life?
6: Well, it's an extraordinary area because it's the first ever suburb um, outside the Roman city of London. And um, it flourished because it was a place where poor people could come and live quite cheaply. But if they were skilled as tailors or shoemakers, they could sell things to the rich people in the city. And so it created this uh, bright field of opportunity. And because of that, um, migrants from all over this country and as time went by from all over the world came to Spitalfields. And so it became this extraordinary melting pot. And Kind of origin of really most of the culture of London, and there's something incredibly exciting about that.
2: Definitely. So I discovered your work because I was doing research on um, the Huguenots for my lessons for my year ten, and um, I used a lot of your writing to inform my lesson planning. And I just went on a, one of your guided tours. So can you tell us more about your guided tours?
6: Well, yes. Um, Because I've written so many stories, um, I set out to write the stories that no one else would write and to write about people that no one else is writing about. And it's meant that throughout this time, um, a lot of my stories have been used by tour guides on tours. And I often stop in the street by tours and I eavesdrop and I can hear the stories that I've written being told. And I've always taken that as a great compliment because the reason I tell these stories is because I want to reach them take them out to a new audience. Um, And then one day, someone said to me that um, because of all the stories that I had, I had the possibility of creating some tours that might be that might be more worthwhile than the tours that dominate our neighborhood at the moment, which are the tours that focus on the Whitechapel murders at the end of the 19th century, and that seem to glorify the um, the serial killer and, and violence against women, really.
2: Mm-hmm. Femicide, indeed. So is that what informed your decision to start doing guided tours? Because on your on your blog, you do say that you have a new project. Could you tell us more about that new project?
6: Well, yes. Um, I was interested in the idea of um, community tourism, whereby if you're a tourist and you're, you come from the other side of the world and you come to London, that you could meet somebody who's a member of the community. And you could learn about the people of the place. So I've been working with um, a number of people who live here and a part of this um, and designed this tour, um, which you came on, as a kind of route around the place. And because of all my stories, um, I know about the people who lived in all these buildings. So it's a way of experiencing a place and discovering the lives of the real people that are there, not necessarily famous historical figures, but the people who have actually made the place. So it's been a great delight to do that. But there's a kind of politics behind it, which is that um, it means that the money that the tourists spend uh, stays in the neighborhood. It doesn't go out to some corporation that's running it. And it's also a way for people who live here to tell the story of the place and to say that this is not a place that's just about shopping malls. And it's not a, certainly not a place that's just about the story of a serial killer, that there's so much more that makes up this community.
2: Definitely. So there is a, a sort of educational and also political agenda to your guided tours, which I find very interesting because we do need to th- rethink the way we um, we see gentrification. And you, you showed us in our, on the guided tour I went to about fa- facetism, you know, where, with the different mm-hmm. facades. And, and I, I didn't know that. And I was really, really interested. Could you tell us more about this?
6: Yes. Well, um... Over the last 20 years, the centers of wealth in London, the City of London, the West End, have expanded. And they've expanded into the surrounding areas like Soho and Spitalfields, which tend to be conservation areas. So when they want to redevelop old buildings, the compromise arises that um, the old, front wall of the old building is left and nothing else remains. And there's an ugly politics behind this because in general if a developer buys an old building if they were to if they destroy it and build something that's the maximum size they can build which is what they want to do usually um, then that's what they do but if they were to take the more environmentally responsible path which would be to retain the building to restore it repair it repurpose it then they'd be charged 20 percent vat on their whole development by the government so the destruction of old buildings is government policy. The facades are a kind of loophole because if you keep the facade, then um, you don't have to pay VAT. But I find it's something that's very patronising and rather insulting really. There's this idea that somehow if the front wall is kept, maybe we won't notice. And. In spittlefalls we have this building the london fruit and will exchange which used to be a small business center with 200 local businesses and when it came up the possibility of redevelopment the local council rejected that unanimously because we need affordable workspaces here but the mayor of london who's now the prime minister stepped in and overruled that and so they destroyed the building released all the carbon and um you know wasted something that was a really quality piece of architecture and now there's a corporate construction there with the front wall of the old building in front of it and it has a corporate law firm taking up one floor of it the rest of it is empty and the ground floor is chain stores most of of which are empty now most of the 200 businesses that used to be in there have gone to the wall and the only local people that work there now are cleaners but the, the facade somehow is there to give the impression that nothing's changed when of course Everything's changed, and unfortunately, this is a phenomenon that's now right across London.
2: What a symbol that is to have just a facade hiding an emptiness, isn't it? What a symbol of our government.
6: Well, yes, it makes you feel like you're walking around the the, the back lot of of a movie studio or Mm -hmm. behind the scenes in a theatre where um, it's just the surface of things. A ghost town. Behind it, something else.
2: Yeah, exactly. So what are your educational goals? um, Through that new project of yours? What would you like to achieve in the next five years, let's say?
6: Well, um, what we're planning to what I'm training a a number of tour guides at the moment. And uh, we've created this first tour, which is the one you came on. And um, we started off doing two a week, And then in June, we're doing three a week. So this year is all about getting that running. But our ambition is that each year, would introduce new tours that we would look at um, themes such as the different ways of immigration and we might do a huguenot tour or jewish history tour but Mm -hmm. also we might look at um cultural themes such as women's history or queer history or that we might explore architecture or history of textiles or a culinary tour that there are different ways of looking at this and also we might look at other neighbors neighborhoods nearby that we're connected to But I think that it's a new idea, this idea that you could present the city through the lives lives of the people that have lived there. Um, And that I suppose it reflects the changing notions of what history is, and that my belief is that the only history that I respect really is first-person testimony. So we try to avoid generalities or general assumptions about history, but to talk about specific lives for specific people in places that, that specific times
2: um i was wondering if your tours are more um targeting adults at the moment or if you're thinking about um state school students from secondary schools for instance
6: i think it would work for anybody over 12 years old um we've just done our first tour for a university group from um university of oklahoma okay Um, (laughs) which was a curious experience and um it was um, astonishing to discover they didn't know what council houses were. We had, uh, I understand, the American term is um, projects. Um, yes. Um, but it, it, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a really uh, wonderful experience to meet those people, and um, we try to work on the principle that it's a genuine meeting, and that we're open to respect people and uh, to learn about them, and we're not going to behave like air stewards that are anonymous. Um, You know, we want to be uh, open and to respect the people who come and to meet them as equals.
2: It's an interaction, isn't it? Yes. So um, what is your personal experience of um, history and English? Because I know you're a writer um, and you do write daily, I would say. But um, what about history? Because I purchased one of your books, which is The Nippers and um i was just wondering if you consider yourself more of a historian or more of a writer or both
6: well i i would absolutely say i'm a writer and not a historian um that um for 30 years i wrote fiction and um and then at a certain point um i gave up my career to be a carer for one of my mother who had dementia for five years and it was only after that i started again and i decided then to make this decision to write about people who who no one else is writing about and that was very much a reaction to the death of my parents and it, it there's something very shocking about the fact that people can spend their whole lives striving to achieve something and then it can all be forgotten and it breaks my heart when you see family albums for sale and car boot sales um all those people in their best clothes dressed up for important occasions that mean so much and then it's all trashed i just can't bear that so it it gave me this k- kind of passion and imperative to try and record as many stories as i can so i do i see myself as a writer rather than a historian but it's sort of become history in the sense that um you know once you start to collect so many stories and put them side by side then it starts to build up to be a bigger picture and the nippers was just an extraordinary project where. I found the grandson of a photographer who'd done portraits of children in Spitalfields in 1900 and because there was a census in 1901 and because many of the photos were labeled we were able to find out what had happened to the children these were some of the poorest children in London the photographer was called Horace Warner and what was fascinating was that while at that time one in five children here didn't make it to adulthood Among these poorest children, one in three didn't make it to adulthood, but among those who did survive, you couldn't really legislate or predict the outcome of their lives. And we were fascinated and touched to discover that some of them lived into their 70s and even into their 90s, and they lived into into our own time. Um, So it really brought alive these people of the 19th century and made us very connected to them. There were particular individuals where we traced them until maybe they were 15 and then when when the book was published it was on the national news here and people wrote in and said that's my grandmother we didn't know there was a we didn't know there was a portrait of her and they you know were able to learn that actually that particular individual had lived into their 80s and died in fulham in the 1990s so um it was all very touching and very personal but we also realized that it was a perspective on history but a perspective that really resisted any generality about those people.
2: It's a wonderful book. um, And I really cherish it. I um, also was thinking that what you're doing is very democratic, because we have um, the English Heritage and the National Trust that seem to preserve the history of very wealthy people. But we don't have um, the just the, the normal ordinary people's history, that's protected and kept at a national level and I think on your own, you seem to be doing this. So I, I really admire um, your endeavor Definitely. and and this is also why I wanted to to interview you because I think it's an amazing work and I'm sure in 30, 40 years time, um, we will use your writing for history, you know, for, for writing new history books and also for teaching students. So I think it's extremely important what you're doing. Thank you. Um, I mean,
6: I, I think that in the past, or even now, quite commonly, people, when they write about the East End, write about a history of poverty, and people are framed by their economic status. But I've tried to resist that, and instead to write what I call a history of resourcefulness, that because of the economic deprivation here, people have always had to make their own lives, and that there's something really wonderful about that. And it's what makes this play so interesting. And um, to me, that's something to be celebrated and something that's deeply inspiring.
2: Poverty is um, making people more creative, and they develop skills we wouldn't even imagine. And I think it's really important to to broadcast this so that people yes. stop seeing it as, um, as we call it, you know, poverty porn, when we only look at the, the most sad and, and emotional cases, whereas you, you focus on, on the beauty and the dignity of these people. Um, could I just ask you, what do you think is the most interesting aspect of the Huguenots story?
6: Well, the Huguenots were the first refugees. They brought the word refugee in, into the language. Um, I think that um, they were clearly entrepreneurs. Um, And um, in many ways, they're quite idealized, I think, as as a wave of refugees. Um, People, I've heard the phrase, the good refugees. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, we we published a book that really um, destroyed that myth because uh, we published the biography of Joseph Merceron, who was um, the first East End gangster and corrupt politician and he ruled this place from about um, 1780 to about 1820. And he got money from the government to build housing for the poor. And he built that housing uh, without drains in order to save money. And that's what brought the cholera. And really, people think that the human catastrophe of the 19th century East End was somehow organic. But it wasn't. It was created by developers, and in particular, Joseph Merceron. So, um, I suppose we've developed a nuanced perspective on, on, on the Huguenots because of um, Joseph Merceron. I, I, guess, I, I get this feeling yeah. that um, the Hong Kongers, who are the big next wave to arrive,
4: yes,
6: um, will in some ways be like the Huguenots because I suspect they're all going to be businessmen. Um, you can already sense around the uh, East End there are so many bubble tea shops opening up and uh, mm-hmm. we're just waiting for for that to happen.
2: I guess you could also wonder why we were reluctant to welcome the syrian refugees but we seem to be welcoming the ukrainian refugees for instance well there's also
6: a kind of circularity here because um we're very close to the edge of the city of london where the east india company had their offices and today we have a very large well the Bangladeshi community is here in Spilofield. It's the heartland of the British Bangladeshi community. And that's because Bangladesh is East India.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
6: it's because the East India Company were there. The, the main road in Spilofield's commercial street was cut through to bring the loot that the British that the East India Company brought from India through the docks. And here we have the Bangladeshi community. So it fascinates me that the circularity of that connection.
2: And there seemed to be um. A theme, and that is greed, isn't it? Because when you think of that that Huguenot man who was uh, building uh, these houses without drains or sewage, mm. and also you would think of Grenfell Tower, the Grenfell Tower, sure. yeah. Sure. So there's definitely, um, sadly, history <laughs> seems to repeat itself very often. I don't know what you think about this.
6: Well, yes, I think that the East End by its nature has always been about the small people and um, I was involved with the founding of a union here called the East End Trades which was a union of small shops and independent businesses and it what happened was that through writing the stories of small shops I realised that it was the culture of these family businesses that had created the East End but I also realised they were all suffering from the same thing which was the incursion of of, um, chain stores that could pay higher rents um and punitive business rates and what i learned out of that was that the greater part of the economy in tower hamlets is the small businesses but it's the large corporations at canary wharf that have the muscle and this is true in the larger picture too because it's the same in britain that it's the small shops that get the punitive business rate increases while something like amazon can get dispensation because they've got muscle and there's there's a huge injustice there because most of the economy is the small businesses, that those corporations who dominate are the smaller part of the economy, and yet they're the people who have the loudest voices. And it goes back to the East India Company too, because the East India Company invented the idea of being a corporation. They were the first endeavor to operate across many countries and therefore not be subject to the laws of any one country. So there's a kind of sense of microcosm and macrocosm here.
2: It's the first multinational, then, I guess.
6: Yes, exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. So, um most of our listeners are teachers or they are parents. What would you like teachers who might uh, use some of your writing in their lesson planning or tell the students to go and use your writing as a resource? What would you like us to do with the next generation?
6: Well, I think that. Um- It comes down to storytelling and one of the sad qualities of the big city is that people feel alienated from each other they have this idea that that people they don't know are strangers and that they're potentially threatening and I think that uh, politicians use this idea they talk about the masses and um, as if somehow we're all enemies to each other so I think that In education, it's really important that uh, students are able to do interviews, for example, to go into shops and interview shopkeepers, or to go um, to older people and uh, interview them to tell the stories of their lives. Um, Where I grew up in Devon, it was mostly retired people, and as a child I had no one to play with, so I used to go and knock on the doors of all the old people who lived in the street who were mostly widowers or widows. They were. I realise now. This was in the 1960s. They were Victorians. Mm -hmm. So I used to knock on the door and say, "Can I spend a day with you?" So I'd spend a day with an old lady in her 70s while she did her uh, dusting or whatever, and she'd make me an apple pie at the end. And I realise now it was an incredible privilege. What an extraordinary perspective. And it's sad now that children don't have the the opportunity of friendships with people outside their family or their educational group. And I think that the more that the young people can be have access to um, individuals in this way, to learn the stories of other people and get a sense of perspective in time. I think that's really wonderful and helpful and important.
2: That's a great idea, actually, intergenerational contacts. And um, maybe for research, I could ask students to Interview the, first their grandparents because we we don't even know if they have enough contact with their own family and I'm I'm sure COVID has had a major impact on that sort of contacts so that's great I'm I'm gonna try and include that in my lesson planning actually well, I
6: think it's it's sad that very often um, people often never even learn their own parents' story you know that that when people have children they want their children to have a better life and and they don't reveal <laughs> Their own past. And, and my both my parents are dead. And it's a matter of grief to me that I never really learned about what happened to them in their lives and how they came to the time when I was born. And um I think everyone ought to ought to ask their parents what, what happened. And how we get how did we get to here?
2: Well, that's actually my first um the first homework I gave to my year seven. I asked them to interview their family members and oh. ask about how they came to london because most of my students are from somewhere else in the world and um it was great to see the answers there were so many stories and some really got excited about it so it's definitely something i would recommend to any history or english teachers or even language teachers
6: yeah i think Um, i think it's important to own your family's stories and to know where you came from and where they came from and there's a Sort of tragic element to migration, where often people arrive in a new country and they want to create a new life, and they 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 let go of of all that. And then for the children, um, there's no sense of roots or or journey. And so, to retain that connection, I think is incredibly important.
2: And also the language, the um, yes, the mother tongue. Yes, of course, mm, definitely. Well, that is brilliant, so I really really want to encourage any listeners to check your uh, website. Could you say the name of your website again, please?
6: yes, there's there's two names the the blog that I write, which is a daily blog is called Spitalfield's Life. and so if you google that all one word Spitalfield's life, you'll find it. and the tours are called the Gentle Authors Tours and you'll find that at world wide web gentleauthorstours.com. dot com. Thank you.
2: Fabulous, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Um, it was a pleasure. It's a privilege, thank you. Thank you. Wasn't it wonderful uh, to have the gentle author sharing his um, his knowledge and um, his research. As I was saying, uh, his website is a treasure trove of historical knowledge and little nuggets of people's lived experience. There's some very heartwarming stories, and I think he really shows that we're not just little islands; we're all connected. We are a community. Whatever we do has an impact on our kin, but also on the next generation. And um, the, really, his work is phenomenal. the The content, the four thousand posts, one each day over years, it, it's wonderful. So if you want to have more idea of resources about the Huguenots there's a thesis writ- written by um, Tessa Violet Murdoch at Queen Mary University and she's studying over 570 French artists and craftsmen who lived in uh, London and England you can check the Huguenot Society of Great Britain and Ireland. It's a website founded in 1885, not the website, but the society. It has resources, a library, publication, membership. Um, There are obviously, as I said, the beautiful opera, the Les Huguenots by Jacob Liebman Beer. You can listen to it on YouTube with the singer uh, Lisette Oroposa. There's a 2018 version that was filmed in the Opera Garnier. Visit Denis House if you are in London for one day. It's worth definitely visiting. And please, please, please share our podcast for anyone interested in art, architecture, fashion french history french culture and english culture i hope you enjoyed the show and i'm looking forward to meeting you up again next sunday thank you so much and i will leave you with another round of the news for those who missed the news earlier have a lovely sunday
4: in bursary. Terms conditions apply. Find out more at stevewoods.co.uk.
0: If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future.
1: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio news with Joe Fox.
5: Money raised through changes to family allowance in Guernsey is now being invested in cultural activities for children in the island's primary schools, according to a report from ITV News. The changes approved in 2020 have provided £150,000 which can be used for cultural enrichment to give children experiences different from those they might get in the classroom. This has included an interactive science roadshow called the Science Dome, which toured the island schools so children can learn about places and environments around the world. Kim Hutchinson, Head of Primary Leadership and Development said, the initiatives help children deepen their understanding of the world around them. In Scotland, a consultation is being launched on statutory guidance on school uniform, intended to bring down cost and address equality issues. In an article in the TES magazine, It is reported that the Scottish Government say the guidance aims to remove the barrier to participation in learning that it says is caused by school uniform issues. Submissions need to be in by the 14th of October and the consultation process seeks to gain the views of pupils and states that the guidance will not seek to abolish uniform but instead wants to promote equality. The guidance also seeks to avoid the need for uniform to be purchased from expensive specialist retailers. Lancaster is one of the cheapest cities to enjoy student life, according to an article in the Lancaster Guardian. It has been named as the ninth cheapest city in the UK, costing an average of £156.20 a week. The cheapest city is Wolverhampton, with an average of £120.90 per week. The analysis conducted by the tutoring expert SuperProf examined every university location across the UK to determine where students can live at the lowest cost. It was based on cost of living factors, such as the price of weekly student accommodation, as well as weekly costs of alcohol, fast food, coffee and taxi fares. The third most affordable city for students with an average weekly spend of £134.90 is Aberdeen. Speaking to the fifth global conference on the elimination of child labour, Dennis Signolo, Director of Education International's African Regional Office in Ghana, said education is the most powerful weapon you can use to eliminate child labour. Signolo noted that teachers are the ones who identify those out of school and who take action, so investment in teachers was a key priority. He acknowledged that the pandemic had been a huge setback in the fight to reduce child labour, but also acknowledged the impact of natural disasters and challenging economic circumstances. The conference will end with a published document detailing the call to action on Friday this has been your teacher's talk radio weekend news with joe fox
1: This is Two Minute
4: Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello! This week we're going to talk about a couple of shortcuts and hacks that can make life a little easier. This may not be as innovative as some of my past life hacks for teachers, like drinking noodles, but here are a couple of things that may make a difference to your use of media in the classroom. First up, if you aren't already riding it, get on the Wakelet Wave. Wakelet is a free way to save, organise and share content. Create collections of web pages, videos, and basically anything with a web address under one topic. Once done, you have a shareable link to your collection. Use it to organize your lesson, flip a lesson, or create revision collections, just to throw a few ideas out there. This next hack is one of my favorites. I love using YouTube to support learning. Not only can it help keep pace in a lesson, but also it's a great reference afterwards for pupils to refer to. My biggest gripe with it, though, is that pesky advert you can't skip that always decides to play when you're in full flow. Here's a secret that works nearly all of the time. When preparing your lesson, you will have watched the clip anyway to ensure it's appropriate. So just before you copy the link into your presentation or wakelet, type this on the end and T equals 1. That's the ampersand or the wiggly and lowercase t equals and the number 1. Now copy the URL with and t equals 1 on the end and your clip will start one second in. Not missing any content but skipping the adverts at the start. No need to thank me, show your gratitude with a follow on Twitter. Check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed, follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was 2 Minute Tech. Two Minute.